for episode 21 of First Strike. Welcome to the show, everyone. Man, it's good to be back, and I'm really excited because we got two exclusive preview cards from Amoncat to show off. Uh, but before we get on with the show, just want to shout out one of our sponsors, which is Face to Face Games. Uh, go check it out. The best place to get your Magic the Gathering singles in Canada. And we got the full regular crew here. We got Brian, we got Doug, we got GP champion Robert Lombardi. And I brought on a friend today, uh, Mike Lindman. How's it going, Mike? Hi. Hello. Mike is someone that I, I've known for a while now, actually. And, and to me, you're just this super, I might be wrong, like from, from, from my perspective, this super arts guy. And you're trying to get kickstart this really, really, really big project this year. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how to f- fill that opening. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah, I deal with art. I write about art. I find original artworks. Obviously, I have some behind me. Um, and I connect people to them. Like, how do they get started? And I write about that constantly over at Gathering Magic. Uh, you can Google Vorthos and Mike, and you'll find me. Um, and the art show is, you know, hopefully we get this thing kick-started so it finally gets off the ground and people stop yelling at me to do an art show. Uh, so, like, you did this Kickstarter, the, the Magic Art Show. We're going to get into it and what it is. I mean, if we're getting there. You're getting there to almost to the target. You're not quite there yet, right? We're close. Um, we're a little above 12000 of the $15,000 goal, um, which seems like a lot of money. Seems like a lot to bring to a Magic community thing. Um, but what people don't know is if you go to an art museum or a history museum or science museum, those exhibitions cost like a hundred to three hundred thousand dollars to build. Insurance, shipping, guards—like it's shockingly expensive. How much it is? I mean, it's not like we're going to have a flea market putting art out on tables and you get to walk by. Like that's that's not a show. That's just random people bringing things. Like it has to it has to fit Vegas. It has to fit the experience. And when people leave, they'll they'll have pictures there. They'll be like, "Oh yeah, I totally saw that piece, and that was super cool." Um, Mainly because well, this is just a concept. The entire goal is to do these a lot. And with Channel Fireball noticing as the GP main tournament organizer, we're hoping to say, okay, what if we did three art shows a year, one on left coast, one on right coast, one in the center. Maybe we'll up, come up in Canada. We love you guys. My brother's moving back to Toronto this summer. You heard it here first. Sweet. Um, he's moving on the Danforth, which is strange, but I love it. Um, and then we're going to go overseas. Um, there's definitely people in Japan and Britain already that are like, we have collectors. Just would you organize with us? And we said, sure. Um, but we need to do the first one right. And it uh, needs to be done perfectly. Um, but no, I, I'm here for any questions. Because obviously it, it begs, why even do this? What's the right. point? And I just love to hear from just people that are like, do you think this is even cool? Because if the thing doesn't fund... Cripes, if I can't do it and I'm known as the art guy, who could? <laughs> I mean, realistically. Right, right. I mean, the, the goal on your Kickstarter says for, for people just joining us, it's to support the world's largest exhibition of Magic the Gathering artwork ever created and to be hosted, at least it's planned to be hosted at GP Vegas uh, 2017 on June 14th to 18th. Um, we've got a 15,000 goal, Kickstarter goal. We're at 12,000 and change. And this project will be only be funded if it reaches its goal by Thursday, April 27th. So we've got, give or take, two or three weeks, Mike. 
Yep, we got about two weeks and change. Really, the last big push that we have to explain to people is, you know, we had, we had a dinner already Phil. Turns out hanging out with artists and having food and drinks with them is fun. I had no idea. Um, sold the painting. Uh, the next thing is we have an opening, uh, uh, opening night show. And we really haven't explained this all that much yet because we really wanted to leave this the last two weeks. Um, for people that have been to PAX or been to anything where they have these bazaars or weird stuff, um, or even an escape room. It's these add-on experiences. And an opening art show introduces the community to what is it like at opening night? I mean, is it just slinky dresses and suits? Well, no. It's going to be playful. We're going to be having a bunch of different things going on with it. We're going to announce it probably in the next few days here what we have all in it, and that's why it's so expensive. Um, but there'll be food, other things to come, um, and we have some uh, Wizards people getting involved with it too. Because um, obviously they can't just write an open check to us this time, dot, 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 2018, we'll discuss then. Um, but they can help out with some ancillary things that it could be really, really fun and playful, like Magic Pictionary with an oversized card. Sounds stupid, but if you get to bring the thing home, that becomes a memory. That becomes an experience that you had at Vegas. It's not just me and Durfington trying to find weird Las Vegas soda. It's I went to see a thing. And I got to hang out with Steve Argyle and his wife was just cracking jokes the entire time. Like it's this memory. You don't get at a normal GP. You don't get at a normal place. And the opening night will really be the kickoff for that to build hype for people just to stop by. Cause it's going to be free on site to everybody. You can walk in and live in Vegas and come see it. And that's the goal is we want to break down that barrier so people can see it up close. And God knows we'll make a couple hounding collectors that are addicted as I am in the near future. Um, so was it hard to get people on board, Mike, to start? Like, how did this all get together to be able to even be a thing? It just seems so, like, grand for, for just to start even. I can't even imagine how you guys conceptualize it. Well, I, I think about it yourself. I mean, how often have you gone to play vintage and you borrowed someone's Black Lotus? I mean, you know, it's that at the level. Borrow a Black Lotus. Borrow a playset of Underground Seas from your friend Jim but you have to drop off your Xbox as collateral <laughs> and you got to give him fancy cheese and some salami just as a hookup. Otherwise he'll say no. Now just take that and expand it. <laughs> you know, that, that's really all it is. And you know, we'll pay shipping both ways. Um, I'm even paying for extra carry-ons for artists. So they bring stuff. So they'll bring an extra box of paintings, but they'll also bring extra prints and extra playmats so that, not only do we get art at the show and we'll cover the cost, whatever it is, but all the players get more stuff to pick up too. And, you know, so we work on that and I found a couple of collectors that had a lot of pieces um, and said, Hey, can I get eight of them? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, when are you ever going to borrow this? You're going to go into the, the Met? <laughs> where, where are you going to go to the Louvre and borrow a magic artwork of Wanderlust? <laughs> no, ain't gonna happen. Um, but people are realizing if I loan something, and I'm going to be selling it in the next six months. That's advertising for me. It brings me notoriety as an art collector. When I go to other art shows, people will let me go to the front of the line. There's all sorts of these weird art world benefits that we're playing around in. Um, and as I, as I alluded to, this is the precursor. 2018 is the 25th anniversary uh, of Magic. So what if we did a show of all alpha artworks next can't start with that that's crazy that's utterly crazy like can you imagine the insurance on that alone um 
But I do know I, I started the Alpha Art Project like six years ago just to track down where all the alphas were, um, just to find out where the people are and be like, do you have one? I found old play testers. Um, we'll talk to Richard Garfield and just really started tracking out where did all these things go? Some of them were stolen. Some of them literally were destroyed. Some of them have copies and were stolen and then gotten back. It, it's there's a bizarre history behind them. But knowing that, I said, okay, how can I do something cool here? And then that will be the future. And then we'll play around with other things to say, you know, maybe face-to-face has a modern GP and we'll bring a full modern deck with. That could be cool. I mean, imagine you have the deck and you take a picture in front of it, winning the GP with the affinity deck, with the stuff behind you. Like, that's freaking cool. You, you can't, it's nice to have a giant Hearthstone, like, set. But art is the next closest thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Rob, guys, got uh, some questions? Yeah, so, <clears throat> Mike, you said that um, you weren't going to get, I guess, additional funding from WOTC this year, but it might happen in subsequent sessions. Did you guys reach out to them earlier to see if they wanted to sponsor this? Yeah. Or, like, yeah. have you talked to Channel Fireball at all? Because, I mean, you guys doing this kind of brings more people into the event, right? Technically, yes, and I did reach out in... 2012 and 2013 and 2014 and 2015 <laughs> and 16. Uh, I literally reach out every year and their event people know who I am quite well. Um, but their event people don't deal with GPs because GPs are totally not Wizards Jam. I mean, this is like it, totally outside their doors. So for them, they could say, well, we can help out with an escape room, maybe, or, you know, bring a cosplayer if there's a special need or something. But it, they can't just do a random check because it doesn't, they can't prove that it does anything because they've never done one. So I said, fine, I'm going to do it. We're going to figure it out and we're going to see, does the community care about this? Are people willing to pitch in five bucks, maybe 20 bucks, talk to Rico, you know, your Canadian boy who makes tokens that are super sweet. And then we're going to make this the new normal. And then wizards could be like, oh, all right, well, we'll take all that stuff and ship it to Italy. How does that sound? Because that's an easier sell than building it from scratch because they have no one in expertise that does that. And there isn't an event person that oversees GPs. Like, that person doesn't exist. There's one that does, like, Pro Tour and Worlds, but that's it. So they, we kind of have to do it for them, and then they'll figure out, well, how can we be of help? Do you need us to print things? Like, what, what do you want? You know, and just building that set of needs is so different than a normal art museum where, you know, all those things are built in. You have curators and you have registrars that, you know, figure out condition when it comes in and when it leaves and packs it. And people that literally paint the walls here, we're in a convention center, like, like 20 steps away. There's barbecued chicken wings. Like it just doesn't make sense to people right away. So if we can do it here, if we can do it at a GP, we can do it anywhere. Then maybe we do small exhibitions at places. Maybe wizard says, you know, we have a weird thing, packs coming up. We want to do a little showcase of X thing. Or we're going to do a weird pre-pre-release at someone's store. Could we get some art there? And then I can talk to local community members and get that in there. Because the art isn't owned by them once it leaves the artist's hands. Collectors own it. And frankly, it's taken six years to really build up the notoriety and trust for people to say, yeah, you know, he'll actually do it. We know who he is, whatever. Put it up, send it back to me in a crate. Fine, we'll figure it out. Um, but even three years ago, it just wasn't as possible because the TOs changed every week and a half. 
now it just happens to be that Fireball is for Vegas and then will be in the future. If it was a different one, it would be a lot harder right now. What are you guys interested in seeing? That's the curious part of my always want to know. Like, what, what, what do you want to see? Who do you want to see? Obviously, I'm, really a bad, I'm a bad audience for this because when I go to GPs, I barely have time to go to the bathroom for the whole thing. <laughs> so unless you guys are open, like, after and are also serving delicious dinner, I probably wouldn't be able to make it to something like this. Well, I mean, it is over, you know, a week, which is nice. Um, and we're working on snacks and that's, that's the thing. Um, I do have a snack time podcast, which just makes sense. Um, and we're, we, we will have it going on for some peculiar hours. I mean, for us being there 14 hours a day, like that doesn't make any sense, but it does make, it does make sense to be like before and after maybe close over lunch. Um, because then, you know, we could find other things to do during that time builds anticipation. And frankly, it's better for the players because that's really ultimately who we're there for. I'm I'm really curious as to um, kind of how where where art collecting stands right now, um, because I know a lot of these pieces are being produced digitally at this point. Is is that correct? And are there still hard copies of every single piece of magic art out there, or is it something where now only a few pieces in every set are actually uh, being collected at this point? Well, the best way I can describe it, it's a pendulum. Um, if you were around um, during Time Spiral. Time Spiral, uh, Planar Chaos, uh, Future Sight. Um, there was a lot of digital. It was a hard swing digital because they were trying to show, you know, slivers and all sorts of random stuff. Um, and then it swung back. If you look at Lorwyn and Morning Tide, all painted. Look at the lands. It's just, it's paint. And then it swung back the other way to New Phyrexia where everything is digital. Plastic. It's supposed to be plastic. It's Phyrexians. Duh. And then it swings back again. If you look at Theros, it's very painterly, very sculpture-esque even like the 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 whites the artists that they use even like steve prescott had like a bajillion paintings in that um but then steve argyle had like two and right now where they're at is they're swinging back into traditionals again and not only because you know art directors change uh what they want to see um but also because artists uh realize that there's money to be made lots of it now you could argue to say, like, what if you I get a combat trick that's gaining life and limited? Like, you're not going to do a traditional painting of that 18 by 24. That's literally a waste of your time. It's not going to sell for three grand. It'll sell for $40 and a bag of chips, probably fully dressed. Um, but that's all you're going to get out of it. So you'll find someone that might have three commissions. They'll do one painted painted. And the other two, they'll finish digitally. But they'll start out with a sketch, pencil, always. Um, sometimes they'll add, like, a, a, a rough wash which would be color um and then they would finish it off after the fact um those happen all the time but people don't always think of those because you'll see the final and even with someone like a, a chris ron or steve prescott it looks digitally touched up it's because it is every painting has a little bit of color correction so it seems as though everything is digital but it very much isn't it, not not at all i mean it's not half but it's you know in that 15 to 25 percent range um, the biggest issue now is lands generally are digital, and that bugs the crap out of people. Um, they really want those to be more traditionally painted. Mark pools all of his commander lands that he did, that the set of five, or Rebecca Gay, her set of five, all traditionally painted, and those paintings of hers were a billion dollars. Like, the sketches, sketches in color, like, wash, whatever, were like eight grand a piece. Like, mind-bogglingly expensive, because she's a huge deal. Um, but a lot of the pieces, you know, you could probably pick through in the set and see 
which ones are which. And after a while, you get used to some people that do painting traditionally. You know, Steve Belladin, uh, Prescott, Winona Nelson goes back and forth. Noah Bradley goes back and forth. It just depends on how much time they have. And, you know, if D&D is asking for a cover and you're working on a combat trick, which one are you going to do in oils big? Which is going to make you more money? You know, it totally makes sense. But players don't always think about that because it's hard for, to, for us to believe that people do a lot of brands rather than just magic. Like if Star Wars calls you and say, do you want to do concept work? What are you going to say? No, come on now. Like, you sell that for a billion dollars to a thousand collectors. And people do that. Uh, even Carlo Ortiz just worked on Doctor Strange, like, last year. Why would you say no to that? <laughs> hmm. uh, any questions from you, Doug? Well, my uh, answer to the question of what I'd like to see, you basically said it's lands. Some of the iconic lands. lands from magic history. Like, not all lands, but I think that they're some of the most beautiful paintings that I see uh, around or just some some uh, land artwork. Now I saw on your uh, Kickstarter, your whole thing with the Amon cat returned to Ravnica in a strand mirrored in yep. uh, a gallery. So that wouldn't make sense to have like, you know, to be able to track down like unhinged lands or something. Right. But well, th- that well, was just my first thought that I had was just some of the most beautiful lands. Those are what have always been so stunning to me. Well, what if I said that was a future show idea? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just... it's something we're it's something we're working on, and we found that in the first show, um, we we really had to be on the basis of find two or three big collectors that have a lot of pieces, um, and then ask for submission and see what we see where we get. And yep. the other things I can fill in with concept art, um, which I have a lot of. Like here, I'll even show you guys one if you want to see one. Um, so, for example. I have these. They're in my house. These are the things that make up the style guide. Obviously, you can tell, oh, those are Red Mirrens from uh, Mirrodin. Okay, neat. So we can supplement a show to say, well, maybe we didn't find a Plains of Ravnica or the person wasn't able to loan it, but we did have a couple landscapes that depict it. Maybe that would be cool enough for people. Um, And that's kind of the the where we're starting with it, but we do have, you know, there's a shock land coming. We're bringing overgrown tomb um, or another one, which is yet to be named. Um, but we will have basics. I mean, I'm even bringing my swamp panorama from uh, scars of Mirrodin, which is seven feet long. So there's going to be some interesting stuff that you get to see with lands and, and it may change people, which one they use instead of just purple mountain mirage, which is best land. Clearly uh, you may change it after the show just to see what some of the foil ones, you know, may look like next to it. Cause we'll only not only have the piece, the explanation, um, but we're working on trying to integrate maybe a concept work into it, maybe a sketch into it and maybe a card itself too. So you can see the difference to, to, to look at it really anew. And, and, and I think we can find some fun stuff there, especially with artists that are at the show that they can come over and be like, Hey man, I want to buy that print. I saw it in the show and it was cool. I want to put it in my bathroom that I see every day. How does that sound? You know? And I think that will work out pretty decent, at least for the first run. Mm-mm. Right. For people who are just jumping in the show or climbing up in viewers and asking, who is this guy? Michael Littman is trying to make the magic art show happen. The biggest exhibition show uh, for magic, the gathering artwork in Las Vegas. And he's just a couple of the Kickstarter is only a couple thousand away. And I'm checking some, if you're going to be in Vegas, in GP Vegas, I mean, just for the show's free, like Mike said, if you're just around Vegas, you're going to get to experience it. 
and you get to just for five dollars you get to show your support and then there's many different levels where you get a bunch of different things um i'll just jump into we'll have you for this question mike while you're still here but i'll start with some of the guys um on reddit it was one of the uh top topics actually the, the number one topic despite all the preview cards coming out the number one post on reddit was uh mark rosewater talking about how uh starting with our we've pulled back significantly on how often gatewatch planeswalker will appear and rob's nodding so you know is it a big deal to you rob yeah so i mean i, I don't really care uh about seeing gideon on art every set or whatever like that doesn't really matter that matters to somebody i'm sure uh some people probably really like it some people hate it i, I could I'm, I'm not too involved in the story i mean i follow along a little bit just to keep apprised of kind of what's going on but for me it's just ever since they kind of um uh i think it was maybe bfc or, or a set like that they decided that each planeswalker was kind of going to have like a theme where like Nissa does landy stuff and Gideon always turns into a creature and Liliana always interacts with the graveyard and Jace is always either completely busted or completely terrible. Um, so I, I think it'll be good going forward because like a card like Gideon, it's just like, you don't need that card in standard all the time where it's like, we have a three or four mana planeswalker that always turns into a four, four or five, five indestructible creature. and either like makes something unable to attack or block or makes uh, some sort of dude of some sort. Right. And then his ultimate is usually like not really why you're playing it, but sometimes it's useful. Sometimes it's useless, but either way, Gideon always kind of hits hard um, and is, is annoying to deal with. Like they should explore more space in what you can do with a white planeswalker, right? Like bring a car like Elspeth back into the mix where it's like, or a Johnny where, you know, it's like putting counters on things and like, Pumping stuff up or giving them double strike or flying or whatever, just like not a four four indestructible attacker every turn. It's kind of just uh, you know the same old. So I'm glad that they're pulling back on this. I think we'll get to see a lot more different design space opened up in the Planeswalker uh, card type, which is definitely good and will make standard kind of less stale. Because like going from BFC Gideon to Omniket Gideon is just kind of like more of the same old. <laughs> Go ahead, Doug. Yeah, I was just going to say that I agree. And I had this rant with Brian about how we don't like, I think it was Brian that was on the show with me, that we don't love just planeswalkers and standard, um, you know, all of these Gideons. We're looking at this new one and you're going to have all these Gideons in a deck. I don't know if this will change that, but I do know in the history of Magic that a lot of these other planeswalkers that they've designed haven't been as powerful. And I think part of that might have to do with when you've made so many Jaces or Gideon's, you're, and you're going to make another one, you don't want it to just, you know, be revealed, and you see what it does, and you immediately think, that's so much worse than the last Gideon. That's so much worse than two Gideons ago. Or, or oh man, they've now made it better, so we finally have another good Gideon. This is awesome. And that's like a problem that kind of builds upon itself when you keep re-releasing you know, Nissa after Nissa after Nissa, uh, Gideon after Gideon after Gideon. You're going to have to play with some three mana ones, some four mana ones, some five mana ones. You know, uh, Elspeth, when they pushed up to six mana, they made it really powerful to compensate. Whereas when you get to release things like Tybalt or, you know, Tamio, Field Researcher, you can make something that's really cool and like good, but not oppressive 
for, for Tamiyo's sake. And it feels flavorful for what Tamiyo would be doing there. And it's kind of like a neat exploration into this other character, which some people really care about. And yeah, like just kind of echoing what Rob said, it, you just don't want Gideon after Gideon after Gideon. So I'm, I'm happy about it personally. I think this is only a good thing, but I am also still strongly on the less planeswalkers is better because they are not the most fun thing in the game for me. In fact, when we talked about the idea of restricting planeswalkers to one per deck, I was all over that because I just don't think that they lead to fun play patterns. It's ge- like generally the ones being played are because they're so strong that they can just like take over a game and just ruin it. So that's kind of what I think. I think, I think it's a very strange world that we live in where I'm now going to step in to defend the gate watch. Um, because I am obviously like the least flavor centric person on the planet, but it is for a weird reason that I'm going to defend using the same set of planeswalkers over and over. I totally agree with what everyone's saying. It stifles creativity. Um, I, I like the weird planeswalkers, things like Tibble. It, it's just more interesting. You know, the Gideons have been the same constantly. I want to see different things. But that being said, the fact that they use Gideon over and o- over and over is actually limiting the number of planeswalkers in standard. Imagine if like across all these sets, it was a different planeswalker in each one. That means you're more incentivized to just jam 17 different planeswalkers into your deck and have the game be even more about planeswalkers because there is some downside to having, like you're unlikely to play BFZ Gideon and New Gideon in the same deck in high numbers. You're, they're certainly not, you're not playing four of each, right? So imagine if the text on Gideon was exactly the same, but it was now in a Johnny instead. And you could just go three drop a Johnny into four drop Gideon. That sounds nightmarish to me. Um, there's even more planeswalkers in the game. So this is the only reason why I support the Gatewatch is at least now with this huge standard, it, it's squeezing some planeswalkers out of deck space and we aren't faced with as many, uh, you know, 16 planeswalker decks. Um, that's really all I can say good about, about the Gatewatch. The idea doesn't work for me. This, this isn't a movie. This is a, a card game. And I understand that they're trying to appeal on the lines of a traditional movie with the same cast of heroes. You know, Avengers are really popular when they made this decision. Um, but it, it doesn't work for Magic. This is uh, the right decision. But, you know, we're going to keep arguing on this. I want a general scale back in Planeswalkers in general. I'm never going to see it, but I will continue to cling to hopes so that maybe we'll move back to a less Planeswalker-focused Magic in the future. Hmm. Mike, any thoughts on that? <sighs> so I'm wondering if any of you guys read the article that just came out today, <laughs> Hipsters of the Coast. Is the magic story becoming a problem for standard? And I read this very quickly. And the big takeaway is obviously it's like two articles, like Full Metal Jacket is two movies. Um, And it really says this isn't really a creative problem. This is a development problem. And creative is taking the fall for this. They're taking the fall for this hard. They changed rotation, they didn't plan out. This fully how it's going to actually work that you could have two different Gideons, which doesn't make sense when you have a narrative arc. You know, people grow, i.e., why does a Johnny go from gold main in white to a Johnny Vengeant in red white? He got super angry and started fighting things all the time in conflict. Like, there's progression by having this overlap, it doesn't make sense. And that is a that is a hundred percent a development problem. And magic players love to complain about things, everybody knows this. And the Gatewatch are an easy target. And I, and I agree with Rich here that 
It really is. The story isn't the problem, but the story is needed. It didn't make sense to have the first planeswalkers in Lorwyn. I don't know if anybody was there during that time and remembered that, like, what are these? These don't look like fairy tale. What is going on? And, but they were just so cool. It didn't matter. But now, if they were going to do that, oh, my God, can you imagine the pitchforks? It'd be like, why didn't you plan this out? Why didn't you think this through? I mean, Tamio looking back is cool that she was in that set, but she wasn't an angel. She had nothing to do with the current storyline. She didn't fit at all, but they just had to add an extra one. It would be like if right now Vraska was just in a set just because she was visiting. Makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And just like any major character-driven show, have you watched Star Trek the first couple seasons? It is garbage. It is just unwatchable. But it takes a little while to you to figure out how often do we have to see Scotty? How often can Captain Kirk get out of a situation? It takes a while. I mean, it takes people getting used to seeing Chandra more often, or maybe Chandra is really heavy now, and there's a longer arc to say she's going to be gone for three sets, but Liliana is going to stay for six, and then someone leaves for two and comes back in for one. Kind of how Johnny is leaving and coming back. That idea is there. It's just the play is so bad that it's an easy target, and, and I feel for them because they're on the design teams too. These creative people are just being getting torched constantly, and. They really did nothing wrong. This change of how standard works has no impact on their narrative, has no impact on where we're going to hopefully kill Liliana's other demon in this block, of which we still have no idea when that's going to happen or why it's going to happen. But no one's talking about that. The only thing we're talking about is why is Gideon here again? <laughs> to be fair, though, is it, isn't the backlash not coming from people like us? Because honestly... I don't care. I mean, that's where I ultimately fall on this. Like, I don't, I don't care about the gatewatch. I don't care about any of that. I care about what these cards do in a tournament context. And so I, I'm like, I'm finding really narrow reasons to enjoy their inclusion just in how it affects tournament play. But honestly, this decision has zero impact on me. And I don't think it's the competitive community who like is targeting the gatewatch as the cause of problems. I, I think this is something completely uh, isolated to another sector of the fan base. Like, it's, this is actually kind of something that falls outside of our podcast, in, in my eyes, where we're a very spiky podcast. We talk very much about tournament strategy. I mean, I, I don't think this is something that affects the three of us as much as it is this kind of, like, commander base, um, you know, more casual um, player base. So it, it's weird to hear it being attributed as, like, this is what the, the competitive players are targeting because they need a scapegoat. Like, no, I'll definitely target the people who are making the card rules when I have a problem with the card rules. The, the gatewatching is just like another ancillary issue to me that I will comment on because it's drawing the ire of an actual much larger fan base than our own spiky fan base. Right, and I think that's where the point is. I, maybe I didn't clarify that, that even high-level tournament play is such a small percentage of overall Magic players. I mean, even us Vorthos people, there's like 10 of us. Like You can find out who we are pretty quickly. but. The vast majority, those teenagers, the, the people that are on Reddit that have 15 posts, it's those people. Now, it's hard to attribute it to them to be like, oh, yeah, it's the Jimmy with the podcast, and he always is talking about what's going on. N no, but that theme is easy to latch on to in places like Reddit. But I think it's useful for you guys to really talk about that, to say, no, nah, we really don't care. Whatever. Keep making cool stuff. Well, you'll figure it out eventually. Meh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the the way I guess the way I see the problem is that 
Um, you have this two-year rotation. They always want to have someone in the Gatewatch have a Planeswalker card in standard, which I think is fine. Like, I don't care. I also don't care if they all had the same name and the art was completely black on every card. That would, <laughs> that would bug me in the least. But the problem is that when, like, you can do that, but then when one rotates and the next one comes in and you just generate the same play patterns or, like, very close to the same play patterns, like, I agree. This is not creative's problem. I don't care if they have a Gideon in every set, so long as he's doing something different than he was doing in the, in the set previous. The problem is that every Gideon is the same, more or less, and we must have a Gideon in standard at all times. This is the real, that's the real issue. So if their solution to that is, well, we can't make Gideon do Elspethy things, or we can't make Gideon do a Johnny things, then okay, fine. If that's, you know, your. I don't know who decides that, like probably the whole design team plus creative um, that you can't do that. Then yeah, you, then there's going to be some standards where Gideon doesn't have a card in it. Otherwise you're just constantly going to have the same play pattern in white uh, going forward. Right. Um, Or they can just allow Gideon to do other things than becoming an indestructible beater for like a very cheap man cost or whatever. And that's the same goes for Chandra, right? She like always has virtual card advantage now. Um, and, uh, Nissa looks like she's always, you know, kind of animating a land or creating a fat creature that way. So, um, yeah, I just think I, I want the play patterns to be more varied and I don't care how they get there, whether it's keeping a, a gatewatch member out of standard for a while or allowing the, those cards to do things that they're not traditionally, uh, supposed to be doing, but something needs to change. <laughs> like we need a little more variety and planeswalkers kind of, you know, take over. Uh, they can take over decks and stand in a format very, very easily, right? So uh, they have to be very careful about that. So it can get very annoying very quickly. I think people have kind of had enough of Gideon since uh, Ali Zendikar was the nut for the last two years. And he has a friend who also seems quite insane. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, just to kind of close it off, uh, for my opinion, was these multicolored planeswalkers have all been pretty cool to me. Like a Johnny Vengeant, like you mentioned, you know, Tamio, even Sahili, I think is cool. You know, the, the combo kind of sucks, but it, it does neat things. And maybe, you know, more multicolored planeswalkers could be a could be a way of, you know, spicing it up. Because when Garrick all of a sudden was the Apex Predator, uh, that was really cool. And, you know, that card, good and limited, you know, didn't see a lot of play outside, but it was just a really neat Garrick, one of my favorite ones. So. I think that could be something they should look more into is finding ways to, you know, take the staple planeswalkers and add extra colors into them. But I guess for the Gatewatch specifically, it doesn't make sense, but it works for these other characters that are kind of just on the peripheral unless something storyline like turns Garrick into a black, you know, infused with Lillian or something. I don't really read the stories, but someone told me about that as to why he was black and green. And I was like, cool. <laughs> yeah, he's cursed apparently, and not anymore. Now it's fixed or something. Yeah, <laughs> sweet. Uh, Mike, thanks for being on the show. I, I I was happy to get you on to plug the Magic Art Show, and I really hope it happens. Uh, they can find you on at Worthos Mike. We're gonna put the link to the Kickstarter in the show notes. Anything else you want to add? Uh, if you're at GP Vegas, make sure to make time for it. Um, there will be less times where it's less busy. I'll post it, but absolutely stop by. It will be a highlight if the thing gets funded. Um, and our next stretch goal after that, we're going to have cosplayers dressed up 
to fit the plane. Why have a tour guide when you can have a cosplayer that does that? Seems like two birds with one stone and a pretty cool offering. So thanks for having me, guys, and uh, hope to see you at Vegas. Yeah. I will be there, so I'll see you there, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Alrighty, that was Mike Linneman. Um, lots of thoughts, lots of thoughts on art, definitely. Um, for those of you still in the chat, obviously hit a reminder to hit us with a thumbs up if you've been enjoying the show so far. So let's just jump straight to the one of our next topics that we want to cover. It's a topic we've covered already before, which is GP pricing, but maybe a few comments from the guys here. GP Mexico just happened. Only 447 players compared to the 1,000-plus that we're used to, but they had the same prize pool. So any quick thoughts on that, Doug? Yeah, I, I think the fact that GP prize pools don't scale to me is just absurd. Um, I think that it's pretty clear that, and this isn't like a ubiquitous statement, but Generally, the more people are packed into these tournaments, I almost feel like the more miserable the player experience gets. Like I've been to some of these really, really big GPs and there's, you know, you have to wait longer and there's all of these uh, things that get added. Whereas some of the smaller ones I've been to, including like, you know, Costa Rica, you know, things, they flow a little better because there's less people and you have a nicer experience. So my point is, you know, these events that are huge, not getting more prizes just from the fact that there's so many people in the room and you're you know more likely to have issues finding like a washroom that's available or all these other things and you're still only paying out the top like sliver of people that now has gone down to like one percent of people or 0.5 percent of the people as opposed to paying out like almost a, a quarter of the fields uh it's kind of crazy to me so then you know people will talk about the whole to Argument being like the TOs are the ones making the money, not Watsi. So why would Watsi put more money into it? But that's something that they can work out. I'm sure they can figure something out, especially having the same one TO going forward. They could, you know, have this scaling where, you know, if you make X, then this amount goes into the prize pool just to kind of, you know, have like a little bit of that portion sewed back in, which I think would attract more players to these bigger tournaments because I often try to skip the GPs that I think are going to be massive. Being a Canadian, there's a flight price for me, so I have to think about that. But when I look at my GPs I want to go to, the ones that are like the ones that I know are going to get, get tons of people, like a modern GP on like the, the West Coast of USA, I'm just not going to ever go to that GP ever because it's just going to be a billion people and probably an awful experience, which is what I told people. And then there was all of these crappy things that happened at... Uh, some of these GPs were huge delays and things like that. So anyways, that's kind of my opinion. They need to raise the price support for bigger tournaments. It's just a joke. <laughs> uh, Brian, you had mentioned how part of the, the legal reasons is that they, they have to make it public, right? What the, what the prizes are, but would it, could they do what Doug just say, like show like if this many people make that public, if this many people showed up, this would be the prize pool? No, no idea. I mean, maybe, but there's, there's some element of risk to it, and they're not willing to take the risk. They're not going, they're not going to change that position. Um, or, or maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe they, it's not about risk at all, and they just don't want to pay more. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that this is about, you know, not their, their bottom line as much as it is about just being safe in terms of legality, because that, that would be pretty chintzy. And honestly, 
you know, we give wizards a hard time, but they're not chintzy. If they're they're making money on this, they would they would return in a fashion that was practical to do so. And I think if price scaling was safer and there there was no risk to it, it would be implemented by now. But these, it, this isn't going to change. I mean, I, we can talk about it all we want. Everyone knows that prize issues are unacceptable in some cases. And, you know, this was actually a pretty lucrative tournament. And that's kind of been the nature of magic throughout is that some opportunities are very lucrative. Some are not as lucrative. And it just is what it is. Like, I, don't, I don't really know how we get around that at this stage. Um, travel to the good ones. <laughs> I mean, I wish I had better advice, but... Like going to Costa Rica was sweet. I didn't personally make any money, but uh, it seemed like a, a very good opportunity to do so and a good opportunity to get a queue. And it sounds like, you know, it's funny, this tournament and Costa Rica as well, this was a very small tournament. But man, were both of those fields absolutely stacked. Um, you look at this team tournament and the people who did well, it's, it's the same teams who always do well, the exact people you would expect. Um, and, and, you know, Costa Rica was by far the most stacked GP I've ever played. So, yeah, I... It's, it's a tough situation. I hope there's improvement. The only real improvement I think we can see is just more money being put into the prize pool. And we just got more money. Like They just kind of upped the prize support. So I, I don't know if we're going to see that anytime soon. Rob, did you want to jump in? Yeah, it's just... <laughs> G- GP Max is kind of weird. Like This is probably one of the first tournaments where they actually paid out more in prizes than... Even the TO was able to take in <laughs> fees. So it was like a loss for probably everybody uh, involved. And I guess that's, that's some of the risk. But when you have a team-limited event close to the end of a season, which is kind of a weird place to put that anyways, like Omniket is right around the corner. Not a lot of people really care about... Uh, Kaladesh anymore. I couldn't even remember the name of the set for a second there. Like, no one really cares about that anymore. And it's in kind of a remote location that is not, like, it's difficult for people to get to, but it's not, like, the easiest place to get to in, in April. Like, everyone's not kind of, like, chomping at the bit to go down to Mexico uh, at, you know, this time of year. Like, if it was in February, January, like, uh, maybe that's a little bit different, right? It's, like, very cold uh, in the north, and more people are willing to be, like, going down there, but summer's right around the corner, so, you know, what's really your incentive? So, I, I, I don't know like with their planning about when sets come out and what they're trying to do and, and get proper attendance at a, at a GP. Like I think GP max was just kind of like set up to fail um, and be spiked by, you know, the best players in the world, which is kind of, you know, what happened. So I, I don't think anyone should be surprised that it was super low attendance. Um, they, I don't know. I, I don't know what they're really trying to do. Like it doesn't really, I don't think it solves any problems for them. Like maybe if they would have held it uh, when Aether revolt, you know, just came out, it would have had a you know, better attendance rate. We wouldn't be talking about how, like, the prize disparity from, like, a 150-team event is kind of BS compared to, like, a 750-team event or whatever, right? Um, so, I, I don't know. I, th- I think that's where the error is. I don't think that they're going to change the prize pool. They kind of probably have fixed in their marketing or advertising budget for uh, for everything for the next year. But I definitely think they could include sealed products. I think someone mentioned that uh, a couple weeks ago. Like, you could definitely give people sealed product from 100 down to 250 um, at a pretty low cost to both the TO and to Watsi. And I think that's probably, you know, enough to make people not livid that uh, GPs are like $110 now. And <laughs> the price pool is like, uh, you know, equivalent to like a $45 entry fee event or whatever. So, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Hopefully they change something. Um, but, yeah, the value is getting kind of bad. But the dream of the Pro Tour is still real, so... 
Maybe so, they could like print a really cool foil that's like if you day two you get this foil or something like that. It's like everyone who makes it gets something. I don't know. There's gotta be that's something. That's a fine idea. And that's like that's Thank such you. a low cost for them to do. It's like you're printing five hundred cards, like how much could that possibly cost you, right? Yeah, I agree. That would be great. Whatever. Foil Stoneforge Mystics or or Brainstorms or something interesting, right? Whatever. Force of Wills. Who cares? <laughs> And it would get people like, you know, that miss cash to be like, well, yeah, I got this thing. And if you didn't day two, it's like, well, come on, you don't get a pay prize. Like, <laughs> go away. Um, before we move on, we're going to, because people are really anxious, as you guys are seeing in the chat, at least some people, we always get these anxious people. Uh, whenever it's a preview show, uh, I think this is the most thumbs down we've seen in a while on YouTube, just because people just want to see it. Uh, one, this will be the last topic, and then, and then we'll get to the spoiler. Uh, to the preview cards, um, which is just related, just to wrap up the GP Mexico um, topic, which um, which Shaheen Sarani he he arrived late, um, and people were questioning whether uh, it's a team limited event like these guys were mentioning. He was teamed with BBD and Pascal. He was a guest on the show last episode. He's been teaming up with them forever and and plans to forever. And he was going to be late because of his flight. I don't know what reason exactly. He ended up being late for round one and getting a game loss. And there was some debate on Twitter whether he should be allowed a sub just for one round, but I'm I'm not sure I see it. Doug, do you? Like I mean it's it's cool in concept to be like, yeah, someone can sub in, but like my first thought is if that was a system, like what are you gonna do? Like just call your friend in Mexico to just show up. If they're there, like why are they not in a team and playing already? Like how logistically that's just a silly idea, you know, when you're just speaking logistically. And this is one of those things that kind of happens when you go to events that sometimes you miss a flight. And I remember GP Vegas, uh, I hadn't signed up for a sleeping special, but I did advise and our flight got delayed and we had to sleep overnight in a hotel. And we, we called them, we got in contact and like, please put me on a sleep in special. I never take sleep in specials at limited events because I want to spend the time rebuilding my deck because I want advice from players better than me. So then we rushed into the tournament hall, like basically right before round three started. Had I missed it, what would have happened to me? I would have got a game loss. So yeah, it sucks in a team event that you know you have two people you're letting down, but that's just the reality of traveling for these things. So I, I don't think the sub thing is a viable option. At least his two teammates can try and, you know, if they let them play and he just loses his match, they can at least try and 2-0 to pull it out. And if that wasn't the case, because I, I assume it was, but if that wasn't the case, then this is a bigger story to talk about. But uh, I assume that's what happened is he got his game loss and then his two teammates got a chance to play it out, right? Yeah, so if that, they're shaking their heads. If that is right, then uh, I see no problem here. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, he, he said he was joking about the sub thing on Twitter after Helen was like, how is this going to work or whatever? It's like, yeah, that's obviously not a thing that can happen. Like, who's... Like Doug said, like who's who's it going to be? It's like, hey, you, you're not in the main event. Just get over here and play around. At least we have like you know some percentage chance to win now. Um, I don't know. Like I think I'm not sure exactly what the rules are, but they should. If it's not clear, they should definitely clear it up <laughs> in the MTR, and it should be reasonable. Like I don't think there's a reason for you to have uh, a third player. But I mean, if you're late, there's not really anything you can do. Like you have to get that you have to get that game or, or match loss depending on what your tardiness is. I don't think they can 
make special exemptions because then you're going to have all these people coming in, you know, the potential for all these people coming in late and making all these excuses or whatever. So uh, the team should be able to play with two people. And I, I don't see any issues with that. Hopefully that's how things work. I've never really had this problem as me and my team travel together <laughs> to events. So uh, it's a tricky to get into that situation, but I don't know. There's def- the sub things definitely out, obviously. But don't don't give don't don't kick people out of the tournament because their their teammates not there. I will say though, I have you know I had an experience where I was doing this one month like uh, program thing where I was not home and I was staying at this like camp in the middle of this remote place in BC and you know doing this uh, nonprofit mentoring thing. And I told I kept telling my friends I'm gonna be at the GP. I'm going to be at the GP. Like I am going to be there. And then on Friday at like 8 p.m. I roll in. And I just see them on the streets and they're both like, yo, Doug, you actually made it. So, you know, it does happen where people are like, they don't all travel together and you kind of stress a little bit like, well, my teammate might not show up, but maybe you could just like get a different third at the tournament site. Like, I'm sure that's a possibility, right? Like Pascal and uh, BBD just like go over the mic. Hey, who wants to team up with us? Our third isn't coming. That solves the problem right there, right? If, uh, if the flight got canceled, so. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be funny, especially if they didn't speak English. But anyhow, <laughs> I, w- I wonder if that's that's a liability for your record. Like now, you're like, I don't know who this guy is, and now both of us are like watching him play. We're we're commenting on everything. We're playing worse and not paying attention because we're so worried about the lines that this random is taking. <laughs> Just give him like mono blue unplayable deck and take all the best of the other colors. <laughs> Just roll. <laughs> Yeah, seems reasonable, I guess. <laughs> All right, the moment you've been waiting for, I'll let Brian read our first preview. I'm just going to tweet out that we're previewing uh, to all the anxious people. So we'll start with our common. You can't tell the one guy in the chat, though, who left angrily because we didn't preview it early enough. <laughs> I want him to never see the preview card. I want to contact every single spoiler outlet and be like, just don't put it up. I didn't like this guy's attitude. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with this one. Okay, let's, I'm going to share it on my screen. And here we go. Uh, there he is. Our buddy Quarry Hauler. Right. Uh, as you can see, green, three colorless, a camel, one of the finest creature types out there. Uh, unfortunately, not immune to damage from desert, but when Quarry Hauler enters the battlefield, for each kind of counter on target permanent, put another counter of that kind on it, or remove one from it. And it's a, a 4-3 common. Mm. Welcome to Quarry Hauler. Are you guys all excited to put that in every single EDH deck in the history of the world? Because I'm assuming that's how EDH works, right? Like, if I don't like a card, that means it's definitely an EDH card, and it's going into all of those decks. I got, I got to quickly mention first before you go, Rob, is that people might be screen capturing. I will right after the show, which is just a bit past 10, I will tweet this out on First Strike Pod, the official images that I have. So don't do any fun, funky screen capping unless you're really desperate. But here we go. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah, so I don't think this card's making waves in standard, obviously. But uh, it does seem like a very uh, interesting card for limited. Um, so like it, the the fact that it interacts favorably with uh, your potential plus one plus one counters and your bricks, um, and interacts favor- favorably when you've already put minus one minus one counters on your your opponent's stuff, um, is is definitely so, you know something interesting. And, and it's like not uh, bad for its vanilla stats. It's still a four mana four three 
And it, you would expect this to kind of be like 2GG as usually like the kind of green common, uh, you know, mid-range beater card is like, you know, costed like that. Um, but the fact that it's kind of splashable, is, you know, doesn't put a lot of constraints on your mana cost in, uh, in limited is, is good. Like, I, I feel like I'll be drafting a lot of these and I feel like they'll always be like, a, you know, Ds plus. So um, I'm pretty excited to, to play this card and I hope to be able to kind of like go off with bricks or something else useful. I mean, the dream is probably just like uh, allowing your Liliana to ult a turn early or something like that out of nowhere when you're, uh, your opponent wasn't expecting it, but um, yeah, I don't know. Seems good. Yeah, I think this is going to do a lot in the limited format, right? Because not only is it able to kind of power up your your brick stuff, and you know, like you said, the dream of planeswalkers. You can also depower your opponent's creatures who have minus one minus one counters on it. You can de like uh, remove the kind of negative buffs of a minus one counter or minus one counter from your own guy. So, based on what I've seen of the format, this is definitely a, a common that's going to do work. I mean, we, I don't think we can say if it's one of the elite green commons right now, but it's certainly a, a very interesting effect and uh, very synergistic across the rest of the card. So. I mean, I'm going to be honest, looking at that symbol, I couldn't even tell if it was a common or an uncommon. Like, what is with this symbol? But anyways, that's just a little joke. <laughs> the, the, the white on the left side of it just tilts me so much. But uh, anyhow... Uh, is it a I, common or an uncommon? Before you comment. It's, See, it's a common. It's a common. But it's a it's common. A it's common. the first symbol design I've ever seen. Oh, I thought it was an uncommon. Well, this but, card seems pretty sweet then. At a no, this card's really good. Like you talked about how you can remove uh, minus one minus one counters from your creatures. There's actually a lot of spots where you might want to add minus one minus one counters to your creatures. There's some really cool creatures that have effects like the mana elf that you need to remove a minus one when you tap it. And if you get to this turn where you realize like you're still color screwed, and you know you cast this guy to put a second minus one minus one counter on the mana elf to now be able to use it for two more turns. Like, that's a pretty corner case scenario, but that's just, like, a quick glance thought of a way that you can add even minus one, minus one counters to your creatures. So I think this card does a lot. Um, loyalty, we obviously talked about. And, of course, bricks. Like, you know, bricks are in this set. You got to build it up. You got to get more bricks on your cards. And then you'll have cool effects, whatever cool things bricks do. Like, we saw that card that was talked about on the show a week ago or a couple weeks ago. Uh, that that had the bricks on it, so I'm ready to build them bricks up. I'm I got my Lego blocks ready to go. I might use some uh, shrimp crackers that I have as bricks. I guess I just dumped them all out there, but they're good. Uh, they're good little bricks to put on cards and build it up. <laughs> Doug, if you so, put shrimp crackers on my cards, we're going to have issues. Just so you know, but I can put them on my cards. <laughs> I got I got myself the the sleeves on those cards, so I'm going to build the bricks up with this uh, quarry hauler. Right, I think I think that does it for Corey Holler. I accidentally uh, blink. I, did anyone see it? I think yeah, I, they saw it in the chat. They saw it in the chat, it. but did they, did they see the text? I don't think so. I don't think it, it was a full read. Okay. All right. So our second spoiler. We'll start off with uh, Doug. I'll let you read this one, and here we go. Get your bricks ready because we got the Pyramid of the Pantheon. That's right. This is a one mana artifact. And it has a couple abilities on it. The first one is pay two generic mana and tap it to add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Also, that ability puts a brick counter on Pyramid of the Pantheon. Second ability is tapped to add three mana of any one color to your mana pool. Activate this ability only if there are three or more brick counters on Pyramid of the Pantheon. So you're going to start off having this little 
uh, negative mana, but color fixing ability on this one mana artifact. And then eventually, once you've got a couple brick counters, you've quarry hollered it up to three. You can now tap this thing to make three mana, which is a pretty powerful effect. And I'm going to give credit where credit's due for something that I didn't come up with, but actually uh, the editor of this podcast uh, who does like the sound editing, Kyle Mathers, posted in our group that he's excited to try this out in the green red Tron type decks where you are going to have all this extra colorless mana and you sometimes need to filter mana to make like an ancient stirrings or pyroclasm or something like that. And once you've done that for, you know, a couple turns, having this extra mana accelerator could jump you up an extra step or an extra turn might be interesting, might not be good enough, might be good enough. Um, I think it's worth trying for sure. So I think that's kind of cool. And I think this card, it's a neat design. I'm not sold on how playable it actually is. I think that it might be a little too slow unless your deck is really doing something outrageous with colors and mana, some kind of big X spell finisher. Draw a bunch of cards, maybe discard one, who knows. But uh, other than some big X spell finisher, I, I don't really see a lot of the playability, but this card is definitely cool. I think it's a cool design. Yeah, I feel like KYT missed a huge opportunity to troll the chat uh, by just like posting a picture of a brick first before uh, revealing the card. But uh, I'll let it, I guess I'll let it slide this time. Hopefully we'll be able to, to catch it for, for next set. Um, yeah, so, I mean, this card Unlimited is kind of like, eh, whatever, it's not a big deal. But I think, actually, I, I like, um, you know, the idea of trying it out in Modern. It seems interesting there. I'm not sure if it's, you know, better than a star or a sphere or whatever, but it's uh, it's probably, you know, worth at least trying one or two and seeing where they go. I like that it's not legendary. Um, but where I'm most excited to, to see if this card is useful is in Standard and see if we can finally break Paradox Engine. So, um, you know, that deck is kind of already probably a three to four color deck, um, you know, probably Obzon maybe with some, some blue in it. And uh, the color, res- like the ability to produce that mana was already very difficult for that deck. Um, and it didn't really have enough things that kind of untap and produce a bunch of mana uh, by themselves. So given that they've kind of printed this and after you start going off, um, you know, as long as you can cast two or three spells so that you can, like, untap it enough that you can finally, you know, trigger its, like, full brickness or whatever. Um, being plus three mana on a one-three on a one-mana artifact is pretty good, and they have that new uh, mythic green creature that's like an Oracle of Mabdaya, but you can play with the top, you know, but it's for creatures. Um, so I, I don't know, like, I don't know if that plus uh, Life Crafters Bestiary plus, like, you know, Rishkar and this and Paradox Engine is kind of enough to be like an engine where it's like you have enough pieces that you're more than likely to go off. And if you don't, you can still draw a lot of cards and make a lot of mana. Um, we'll see. I mean, I'm definitely going to be trying it out and seeing if it's, if it's uh, cool. I'm also going to try this out in like a Metalwork Colossus type deck. Um, it seems pretty interesting there because you know that, that deck is kind of not... It's looking for one mana artifacts already. Uh, it has a lot of mana to spare usually until one turn where it just like dumps its entire hand and kind of goes off. So I'm, I'm not sure if it's if it's good enough, but, you know, I don't know, Decoction Module, Eldrazi, uh, or Elder Deep Fiend, and, and this, maybe it's something is there. We shall see. I, I, it's definitely a Brewer's card, and I'm excited to see if it has any potential for sure. I think it's, it's definitely close. So let, let me save you guys at least one step of this analysis. 
Do not play this card in Tron. This is not a playable Tron. It's not even close to a playable Tron card. Tron is all about all your cards having redundancy and ultimately leading to assembling Tron. This does none of that. It doesn't replace itself. It slows down your mana, where Tron is all about accelerating your mana. Um, so no, no Tron. Get that. Just just skip that. Skip that step. I promise you, I'm just saving you time. But let's talk about where this could be playable. I think Improvise is an interesting home. Um, I think that Metalwork Colossus speaks to it. I am concerned that it, it's, you know, the one, if it, it was, if it was a filter, if it was one tap, you could probably get me on board with it. But down, downgrading your mana across three turns to eventually get paid off, I don't know. I don't see it. I, I, I think it's underpowered. Um, I think it will find its home among other EDH cards where, you know, and look, there is a, a way the format could shape where, you know, sometimes standard gets a little EDH y where there's weird things going down. Think, think back to like uh, when the Door to Nothingness decks were a big game and it was all about these huge mana decks. Okay, well, now we can start talking about this card in, in that kind of format. But we haven't been playing that kind of standard in a long time. And when I think about, you know, having a pyramid of the Pantheon in play against a uh, Cat Combo deck or a uh, Marty Vehicles deck, it kind of turns my stomach a little bit. I don't think I'm winning any of those games. Um, so for current standard, I'm not seeing it. Um, but there is a world where we could get into this kind of big mana fantasy land. And, and this card obviously produces a lot of mana. It becomes very powerful if you have the, the setup time for it. Um, we'll just have to see if the format turns in that direction though. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I, this card is obviously terrible if they don't ban the cat. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. the thing is, I'm saying that about so many cards in this set, right? Like, so many cards are, I think they're so cool and they're so interesting. And I'm like, oh, I totally want to build around that. But then I think about like taking a turn and not establishing board presence and not defending yourself. And it's like, you can't afford to do that in the first four or five turns of a standard game at this juncture. You, you just lose those games. I mean, think about for anyone who's played like Cat Combo Mirrors, you know, on turn three, that a lot of times you can't even you can't bluff a removal spell because if you don't lose if you don't use your mana on turn three to uh, establish yourself on board in some fashion you're going to lose the game anyway even if they don't combo off on that particular turn because using your mana efficiently and staying on pace of your opponent is so important in standard right now and you know you see things like this card and as foretold I- I'm a little worried about how it fits into just the current landscape. And how we play games of standard right now, there doesn't really seem to be a place for these type of effects. So let's keep our fingers crossed that something changes and we get to play with all these sweet new cards, as opposed to just saying, oh, this would be great if it wasn't for a cat combo. I think we have to assume cat combo is banned. Otherwise, we should just go on hiatus until it rotates. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just stop commenting until, uh, <laughs> until it's gone. I also do think you're flat wrong about As Foretold. Uh, not being part of the conversation if cat combo exists, but that's a conversation we can well, have. I mean, that's that's certainly closer to playable than a card like Pyramid. Um, obviously, the power level there is kind of off the charts, but right. I, I still like in most standards that would be the first card I sat down and started brewing with because it's the exact type of effect I like, and it's obviously very powerful, uh, repeatable across many turns. It kind of fundamentally changes the way the game is played. Um, but I do have pause when I think about giving up my. Um, turn three to do nothing and maybe getting no benefit on turn four if I don't have a one drop and maybe no benefit on turn five if I don't have a two drop or you know not having the right two drop so uh, we're just living in a different world and those kind of gaps in your efficiency are not something you can tolerate right now so 
we'll have to see. Uh, my fingers are crossed for a ban, but we'll see. <laughs> Hopefully, I, I don't know. Maybe this card can push one of the improvised decks over the uh, over the hill too. As, uh, maybe. Always, always say. Assuming cat combos banned, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think uh, like I, I'm pretty sure cat's getting banned. Um, but I feel that uh, they put enough pieces into this set to combat against uh, very good vehicle strategies that I think that Mardu will not just be, like with Cat being out of the format, I think Mardu will not just be head and shoulders the best deck in the format. Like with Megalhorn and Magma Spray and some other um, useful cards that they printed, there's definitely, a, you know, you can interact with it in a fair way <laughs> now. So I, I don't know if the three mana Gideon you know, it is so good that it, they don't even care anymore. But um, I think that they've they've at least put some good answers in for like scrap heap scrounger and and the vehicles uh, in, in general. So I do also just we'll want to throw it out there that uh, if you have an as foretold out and you're finally getting to a critical amount of time counters, your opponent could just cast camels and remove your time counters. <laughs> so got to watch out for the way camel interacts with as foretold. <laughs> Just so, might, uh, Doug so just level three the format on day one. Well, <laughs> interaction there, and if you like Sahili your camel, then you got no time, no time. <laughs> so just watch out, be careful. Um, camels coming for you, right? Um, that's for spoilers. I guess we'll we'll just jump into a few cards that uh, we'll just have the guys talk about, debate over. Um, if anyone has specific cards they want to from the new set that they want the guys to talk about, leave them in the chat or leave them in the comments so that we get to it next episode. So I'll start with one that uh, Brian, I think, if I can just drag, wasn't that super impressed with when you first saw this on uh, when I published it on our Facebook page, which is the Champion of Ronis. Uh, three colors, one green. Uh, in, in a way, a 3-3 three, three Elvish Piper, if you will, like you said, Brian. Except, except worse. An Elvish Piper already isn't good enough. I mean, this card has to, to get multiple uses. First of all, you won't get multiple uses on back-to-back turns because it has to exert. Second of all, it has to survive combat. So you're kind of going all in on your first activation is enough. Now, there's very little removal that could kill Elvish Piper that wouldn't kill Champion of Ronas as well that's played in Standard. I mean, basically, it just you have a kill spell, you have a kill spell. Um, you know, obviously, we're, when you're talking about something like Fatal Push, you'll have to jump through a few hoops, but there's enough removal for Champion of Ronas. And the cards you're putting into play with it are significantly worse than the ones we were able to put in with Elvish Piper. And Elvish Piper saw actual zero play in a much less aggressive, aggressive meta without a turn four kill. So I, I don't know, man. I think people are, people want this to be good, but it's just not going to happen. Like. Elvish Piper could have put Emrakul into play and didn't, didn't see any play. And I think possibly also Progenitus. It may have been legal and standard at the same time as Progenitus, and I'd rather put either one of those than our current options. Um, so, yeah, you guys are, are just trying too hard if you think this card's going to be a big difference maker in standard. I mean, it's not to say it can't be a role player, but your job when it comes spoiler season is to evaluate what's going to be shaping the format going forward. Uh, what cards do I need to be prepared for on day one? How do I get an edge? This card is doing none of those things. It's like fine on rate. It could find some fringe uses, but uh, people were really excited about this card when it showed up, and I don't really understand why. I don't have current excitement for this card, but I hate cards like this, and I think they are stupid. Um, it's just 
now for the rest of the time that this card is in standard, they will have to very carefully make sure that they don't print some stupid fatty with an insane ETB, ETB ability, right? Where it's just like, I don't know, there's just too much free spells going on right now, like in standard in general. And uh, while this one's probably the least powerful of all the options, it's still like just completely unnecessary. Like the only time this card is not completely terrible is when it's completely broken. Like there's no middle ground. You're either doing something that's like completely unfair and it's worth putting a hail giant in your deck to do it. Or it's just like some people are kind of having fun, but probably losing. (laughs) They should just be playing Marvel or some other way to play free spells like as foretold or whatever. So I don't know. I think this card does nothing to, um, to make the game interesting. And I, I just, I very much dislike uh, cards like this that just very uh, greatly reduce their ability to print more interesting cards, uh, you know, in the future. Well, I agree with both of them. So I'm just going to talk about something slightly different because I don't want to be a broken record. (laughs) I don't understand why the champion who's like got the basilisk scale in his hand, which is what the, uh, what the flavor text says, who's like this warrior creature type, how is he bringing creatures? Is he just like really bad fighter that just like brings other things to do the fighting for him? <laughs> Does he make them angry by fighting with them? And then he just like runs and they follow and then they get distracted and attack the other like planeswalker. Doug, the green God has I rewarded the champion with another fatty. Come like, on, man. I feel the flavor. But, but then why does it say the only way to finish the trial of strength is with a basilisk scale in hand? It's like he fought the basilisk and ripped its scale off and now has it in his hand. But I don't know. I don't get it. Bad, bad design. Mediocre card. Move on. That's my opinion. <laughs> All right. Let's move to the next card. Uh, let's, you have a go at it, Rob. It's pull from tomorrow. Double blue X instant. Draw X cards then discard a card. Is this going to make a major impact in standard? Yeah, I think this card is very good. Um, I definitely think that if there's a blue control deck, they will be playing some number of these. I think it's very unfortunate in the way that it interacts with the current blue finisher, which is Torrential Gearhole. Um, but I think the card's still good enough to see play. Like, I don't think it's a four of, uh, although like it's not Sphinx's Rev, obviously, but I definitely think it could be a two of. Um, and at least a, a, a one of, at, you know, as a minimum, um, definitely, you know, casting this late game and drawing five cards and pitching a land is definitely very powerful and probably something like a, a deck like um, Teamer Tower was really looking for. They didn't really have a lot of ways to spend all of their mana in the late game when they're kind of just like gassed out drawing lands and not being able to constantly put more uh energy counters on themselves, I guess, from the tower. So, I don't know. I can see it slotting into a deck like that. I think it's definitely going to be a player in standard, but I don't think it's busted. It's definitely sweet, though. I'm I'm glad this card exists. The thing that bugs me about this card is all the people who say it's the new Sphinx Revelation. Uh, This card is not, like, comparable, in my opinion, to Sphinx's Revelation, because the whole gain life thing was huge. And like when you think about the thresholds with the discard a card, you have to hit five or six mana before I really even want to like think about ever casting this card. And if you have multiple in your hand, it's just like, well, at least I know what I'm probably going to discard on like turn four or five. Cause like if you pay four mana, it's draw two, discard one. That means you're even on cards. Five mana is when you're now finally up a card. 
six mana is now when it starts looking, you know, pretty good. Um, also, you know, I, just if you look on the screen of the thesaurus, the three cards that it's showing that it's most like, none of them are Sphinx's Revelation. That's a fun card road trip game. I don't know if you've ever played before where you name a card and other people have to guess what the thesaurus on Mythic Spoiler would have uh, for that card. Just a fun little game you can play on road trips. But no, I, I'm not really up on this card. I don't think it's going to be um, hugely played in the current format. Like Rob said, there's maybe a spot in Teamer Tower, maybe. But you know, if you draw multiple, unlike Sphinx's Rev, where you're like, okay, well, I'll cash in one for two, like draw two cards on turn five, and that's okay because I have another one to like close the game. This doesn't feel like it's really closing the game. Uh, maybe a one of in some control deck. Just like a randomizer card. I don't know. I don't like it. Yeah, it was it was a while ago um, where it was it was probably right after Pro Tour Kaladesh where I was testing um, kind of the blue control decks and, and just trying to find a way to make blue control work. And the exact effect I was always missing was this effect. I needed a card that scaled throughout the game that was bigger than Glimpse of uh, or a glimmer of genius because the problem uh, with glimmer of genius is that is that it fills your card quality much more than it fills your card quantity and you would reach a point in the game where you needed card quantity um, now this doesn't do this quite as well as a tool like sphinx's revelation but few cards in the history of magic have um, this this is not sphinx's revelation don't confuse yourself into thinking it is but it is a very very needed card for some blue control archetypes I could see um, blue-black control being much more viable just because of the printing of this card. Um, the Teamer Tower thing is a little weird because Teamer Tower, you have to remember, plays uh, usually 21 lands, I believe, and they really don't ever want to draw more than six. Um, at six mana, this is only okay. It's, like, it's still worse than Opportunity, which is like a strong card, but certainly not a broken card, Like not one of the all-time great blue card draw spells. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do think this card will see play. I think it was an important addition to some specific decks. Um, but definitely worse than Sphinx's Revelation. And, and again, pump the brakes a little bit, guys. We all get so excited come spoiler season. Um, it, I think it does benefit you to have some, some pessimism. So this is a season I really excel in, um, because I'm able to tap into my natural well of pessimism. Um, but yeah, this is... You can play this card. I will allow it. This isn't like uh, the Pyramid in Tron where I absolutely forbid you to even test it. This is a card you can definitely try out in your control decks, and I think we'll find a home in a lot of them. I'm going to 5 a league with Pyramid in Tron. Just so you know. and <laughs> Doesn't make it right, to put Jeff. this into perspective, someone <laughs> offered to pay like basically like $110, like a booster box, if someone would win a modern 5 a league with four seances in their main deck so my friend just cut four cards from tron and put four seances in his deck and <laughs> five out of league and won the bet so i'm gonna get there with pyramid is all i'm saying <laughs> you might very nice very very nice <laughs> i know this card's been overdone but i guess let's just get it over with uh we've been talking about it all throughout the show uh quick words doug is it the truth is it the real deal yeah, this card's great. Like, it's amazing and modern. I think that it's going to be uh, something to consider looking at in Legacy as well. This card, in those formats especially, where there's broken zero mana cards, is just awesome. I'm already trying to 
work on, you know, new versions of like living end, trying to, you know, cycle with the blue cycle cards and change from the Jund uh, shell. You get the new Sphinx that exists that's cycling for a single blue. Um, it kind of is a bit of a nombo, sadly, with Deadshot Minotaur, where if you have two Deadshot Minotaurs come in and you have the like new cycling Sphinx come in, then, you know, it just shoots up uh, at that. But the only thing that's awkward about this card with Living End is it obviously, you know, it, it, like your deck has to have the right number of cards in your hand as opposed to having just one cascade card. But what I think it offers is you now can actually play cheaper cards in your deck, like Fatal Push or whatever, if, if you're playing like that kind of a deck, because you have to have As Foretold and then for zero, you cast Living End immediately after. That's kind of how it works. You have to have them both in your hand. Um, but you can also jam Ancestral Visions into that deck to win a Trishni game. So I, I th- I'm already kind of just trying to brew this idea in my head and, you know, throw it into a deck and try it out. And for standard, you know, it looks like it's not going to be great, especially the way that we have standard right now. But a control deck, being able to keep its mana up uh, for something like Torrential Gear Hulk or Glimmer or whatever, and still being able to counter stuff with this like two turns later. I think that that's good. And because of cards like Fatal Push that you can kind of get in in the first couple turns of the game, turn three might be an okay time to take a turn off, especially because you can clean up whatever Planeswalker Gideon they play with the new um, the new Heroes downfall, downfall or Ruinous Path variant. So I think that this card is real, and I think it's real in all formats, and I'm super hyped for it. I just want to quickly mention, we are talking about As Foretold. I forgot that. We do have people that just listen to the show, so As Foretold. Uh, yeah, As Foretold. Two colorless enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, put a time counter as on As Foretold. Once each turn, you may pay zero rather than pay the mana cost for a spell you cast with convert mana cost X for less, where X is the number of time counters on As Foretold. Brian, do you agree with everything Doug had to say? Yeah, I mean, it's at least interesting. And I think this is the type of card that you know, as much as I love snap judgments, this card demands a little play, but it demands that play. I mean, this is an interesting effect that absolutely, if you want to be on top of all of the formats, you have to see where As Foretold fits into it. Um, I, I do think I'm most excited about its modern applications. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there with Restore Balance, with Ancestral Vision, all, I mean, all of these zero-cost cards, and, and I think the Living End idea is, is very interesting. I don't think you need to necessarily move away from Cascading. I think you can still look to Cascade, just you're doing it um, with, a, with a secondary engine now. Um, I mean, then you'd obviously lose stuff like uh, Ancestral Visions from that kind of build, but it's, it's still, there's, there's new possibilities, and for a format like Modern, new possibilities are tough. They don't always show up all the time. Uh, so yeah, I want to see where this goes. I'm not a hundred percent sold on it yet. Um, but it's definitely interesting and demands some play. This card is stupid. It's stupid. Like the green card. (laughs) Why are we, there's three cards in this set that allow you to cast cards without paying for mana. There's that like Sphinx's structure or whatever that was called. There's the three, three, and now there's this card. (laughs) We already have Marvel. Uh, and I feel like there's some other card in standard that also lets you cheat mana. It's like, what are we doing that we need three cards in the same set that all allow you to kind of do whatever you want without spending any mana for it? I just, I feel like this card is interesting, 
but it doesn't need to be here uh, if everything else is here. So it's kind of in a weird spot for me. And again, this is another card where it's like either this is completely, you know, breaks standard or some other format uh, and requires something probably to happen and people get sick of it, or it's completely terrible. <laughs> and I don't know which one of those standard formats is better. Like, is it better to have this card be broken? Or is it better where this card that's so strong is completely unplayable? Um, I, th- I think this card is unlikely to be broken in standard, though, Rob. I mean, uh, the argument in modern is totally fine because it's casting some extremely powerful cards, but the, there is a slow buildup to As Foretold. It's not like you immediately get to play free cards. I mean, over the course of very many turns, you will accumulate an advantage. It kind of reminds me of... I mean, it's almost like a... Maybe like a JM day tome where it requires some investment and some setup before you're really getting any payback on it. And, and no, the type no, of no, no. I'll explain why this card is stupid. You you play it on three, and by the time you need to fumigate, you can like anticipate into your fumigate and have a counter spell open or a removal spell open on your opponent's turn. And then after that happens on turn six, you now have plus six mana per turn cycle or more for the rest of the game. So, like, as long as you live on turn six, you're now casting Glimmers for free into, like, whatever other stupid draw spell they print at, at five or six mana uh, into Torrential Gearhulk, and there's just, like, zero percent chance you're losing the game at that point. Now, you're taking your turn three off to do this, but... I, and assuming the card stays in play from that point forward. Like, nothing happens to this card. There's not a lot of things that interact with it, though. Like, there's new O-Ring. Uh... And then there's what? Like the last block was all focused on killing artifacts. It's not like we have a race or like monk realist or whatever, like some stupid card like this. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm going to definitely try and my best to break this card. So I'm excited about it, <laughs> but I think that it's a stupid card. Um, I don't know. I think I'll try it in uh, modern as well. Maybe it'll be good in taking turns or something like that. I don't know if that, so since they get to like put counters on it so quickly, it can generate um, a lot of mana from it uh, kind of uh, ahead of when you would expect someone to be able to do that. So I don't know if that's good enough for them to do, but um, seems like it could find a home there as well. I don't know, Doug, if you address this, since uh, you're, you're my champion for this card, uh, Zylog had a question in chat, which was, if Cat gets banned, do you see people playing the camel because it combos with the snake? <laughs> camel combos with the snake? Sorry, yeah. which... Which snake? Just like the winding doubling. Constrictor. Okay, so what are you going to curve? Like winding constrictor into as foretold into three time counters. That'd be pretty cool. Um, wait, could you? Does the snake just make as foretold make two mana a turn? Basically, I think it's not counters on a permanent you can troll. I think it's no, this one counters. Not, it doesn't work on planeswalkers, right? So. Okay, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, I don't know. The camel, I think the camel's cute. I really like the camel. I'm not convinced it's actually going to be played a lot in standard, but I could see somehow, some way, this being useful to like tick up a planeswalker and, and to protect and in the right deck, uh, you know, if it's an as-foretold deck. That is a powerful effect to play this after your as-foretold now already be it you know, two mana that turn, going up to three on the next turn. I, I just, when I made that comment, when we were uh, talking about the cards, it was more like my hope for the camel, because I'd love, you know, one of the first strike spoilers to be like a, a hyper-played card. Um, and the camel, I think, is our only shot uh, out, of, out of the two for having a hyper-played card. But I clearly shared my opinion about the pyramid, which was 
not uh, agreed upon by the rest of the cast. So, yeah, that's kind of where I what I think with the the camel. I don't think the snake's enough to make it super good, um, but it is a cool idea that you can double double. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, overall, I think the those are the few cards we'll cover for this show as we wrap up. Overall, I'm, I'm getting the sense from different players. And I know despite some of the uh, super cards like As We're Told and some people being really excited about Gideon, most people are complaining that this set isn't really that strong overall constructed so far. Uh, is that a correct assessment, Brian? I think it's a contextual issue, right? Like, we, there's so much contextual baggage we're going... I mean, if there was a rotation, we'd be 10 times more excited for this set. I, I don't know, man. I, I think we're going to see a, a long-term ripple effect of kind of a, a panic decision on the part of Wizards to fail from this quick rotation. I mean, this seems like the type of format where we'd be all excited and, and brewing nonstop. And I, I'm in that camp where I, every, every single one of these cards I look at, I think about how does this fare if my opponent goes turn two heart, turn three, other ridiculous card, turn four Gideon. I'm like, oh, it sucks. Every single one sucks, like, except for maybe that one Manic Vandal that could kill the heart. I'm like, oh, well, that's, that's the card I'm excited about is Manic Vandal. Like, that's what I'm pumped for in this set. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I need to see some proof that this format is salvageable before I can go getting excited about this stuff. And I have not seen it yet. So let's, let's see how things go. But, uh, uh, there's, there's a storm brewing, I believe. And it's a storm of zero changes. <laughs> uh, quick thoughts, Rob, as we wrap up. Well, I hope that Brian is wrong on the Me storm. <laughs> that would be uh, very unfortunate. I don't know. I think that um, like the powerful cards look very powerful. Everything else looks like very mediocre. Um, if the aggro decks, like if Mardu stays as strong as it is, and like the Manglehorn plus Mangaspray is not enough to keep it in check, or like mutates to be just as powerful, even though even though those cards exist then yeah, this standard is kind of going to suck. Um, but if those cards are enough to keep that deck in check where you're not just getting run over on turn four uh, and the cat's gone, I think there's like a lot of interesting uh, you know, things going on in this set. There's some interesting removal. Uh, there's a lot of cheating stuff into play. The gods seem close to playable. Like The red and the blue one are like maybe, and Liliana's insane. Um, Combat Celebrant's probably good enough to see play, so I don't know if a red aggro deck will come out of that. Um, but yeah, I think there's enough to kind of shake up standard here. We'll see uh, We'll see what actually becomes of it, but without a banned and, and restricted announcement, I don't think much is going to change. I'll just be playing cat combo. I don't know about you guys. I think the Pro Tour will also just be playing cat combo as well. <laughs> <laughs> parting, parting words, uh, Doug? It's time for some bands. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go with the bands. Um, thank you so much to everyone who joined us. Definitely an improvement in terms of the comments we've got versus my Molten Rain reveal. But I think next time, I guess we gotta we got to tell people exactly when the spoiler is on. But for those of you who are, who are listening to the whole show, thanks to Mike Lindman for being on. Uh, for people supporting or got in the chat with, with everything else that we talked about besides our uh, camel and pyramid uh, super appreciate it. And if you want to support the show, you can check us our Patreon on patreon.com slash first strike. 
and we will see you uh, next week, next Monday. And yeah, that's that's it for me. Okay, thanks, guys, and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Adios. Adios.